0: law, policy, and markets.
1: You have to be able to maintain your core values in what you do, whether it's work or your personal life. Having that ability to feel good about yourself and being able to wake up with a positive outlook and the happiness that you can derive from your career is really a function of being able to feel like you are genuine and authentic to your values.
0: Welcome to Millbank Conversations. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by Karen Wong, a partner in Milbank's Global Project, Energy, and Infrastructure Finance Group based in Los Angeles. Let's get to it. Karen Wong is retiring after a long and distinguished career at Milbank as she's become one of the world's leading project finance lawyers. Today, we'll sit down and talk about how the renewable energy sector has evolved over the three decades that Karen and I have worked together. We'll also look at how the practice of law has changed along with technology and her philosophy on how to deepen professional relationships, both with clients and in mentoring younger lawyers. So Karen, thanks very much for taking the time to to sit down today together. My pleasure. So we have worked together for 30 years and it's remarkable to me i mean a lot has changed in that time but a lot has not changed and working with you is as pleasant now as it ever has been
1: well that's very nice of you to say alan i i can't believe that three decades have gone by so quickly frankly
0: and i remember our our, our first deal together the oildale cogeneration facility up near bakersfield back when qfs were fairly new and before uh, renewables dominated the market you know we were working on our on our first transaction for Chemical Bank, which no longer exists, and the project later went into default through no fault of the lawyers. What was it like practicing law then compared to how it might be today for a junior associate?
1: It's funny. I always recall as a junior associate how lacking we were in technology. I definitely think that today's lawyers with the technological advances, they're doing more substantive work. And so I think, you know, obviously billing rates have gone up significantly since the time you and I were young associates, but I think that the the value added from young associates is definitely more substantive because they're actually doing substantive work because so much of the mundane has been taken out by virtue of the advances from our word processing or word redlining programs and a lot of other technological advances. So. Definitely, I think that what our young associates do is far more meaningful than maybe what you and I did early on in our careers.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. You know, when I when I talk to law students, sometimes they say, "Well, gee, with uh, new technology, with AI coming, you know, will that mean that law firms don't really need associates anymore?" And the answer to me is to the contrary. There's always new technology which is boosting productivity. What it means is that junior lawyers will be in demand for their mental skills, for their judgment, for their creativity for their ability to collaborate on teams to find solutions to problems and not to do things that are frankly better done by by machine
1: absolutely i I completely agree with that and so i think that the ability to jump right in as early as a young attorney in a deal and be able to add value immediately in terms of substance is far more interesting and personally fulfilling i would think than sitting around stuffing envelopes late at night or xeroxing documents i remember distinctly doing when i was a first year
0: and when you look at what else has changed you know i mentioned we were doing deals for banks and in, in those days the financial markets were much more controlled by banks and bank relationships at least in the project finance space and now we see lots of disintermediation in the area we've we've got private equity funds and infrastructure funds Corporate tax equity investors, not just bank investors, the roles that insurance company and pension funds are playing in earlier stages and a wider range of project assets is something that's kind of new. How has that affected your your practice as a lawyer and how you've managed to to navigate that that shift in financial markets and sources of capital?
1: Well, interestingly enough, when I moved, I joined Millbank as a three and a, you know three and a half years out in my career. I primarily moved to Millbank to do more project finance work. And at my prior firm, I was actually doing a lot of developer work as well as lending work. So when I moved over to Millbank in June of 1990, we were actually doing a lot of sponsor-oriented work. And you'll remember this, Alan, that one of our big clients at the time was Central and Southwest their affiliate CSW energy so they had to for affiliate rules have a separate law firm or operate from a different office and so we got to do all the sponsor side work for CSW energy along with some other sponsor clients and so i have always you know frankly had a pretty diverse practice and and whereas i think a lot of people who grew up in millbank at the time i joined they were really more focus on bank side work. And so I've always had the luxury of having a a more diverse practice and having the ability to continue working in the sponsor side work, even from my early days at Millbank was extremely helpful. And then one of the very first deals I worked on was a workout and restructuring for a lease equity client involving a portfolio of wind farms in Tehachapi, So I also had the ability to work on renewable projects when I was at my former firm, having worked on a number of hydro projects and biomass projects. And so joining Millbank in the early 90s and working on a wind farm, that itself was also very unique relative to what the New York office was doing in terms of large thermal energy projects.
0: Yeah, that's true. I remember working quite a bit. So those early wind farms had issues with reliability and so forth. And if you look over the last 20, 30 years, the improvement in material science, the improvement in the reliability of the equipment, the efficiency, the scale and the size and the consolidation of manufacturers as well, which gives credit support for that kind of innovation. It's really been remarkable. And of course, the regulatory shift to give that a tailwind, but the technology improvements have been at least as important.
1: No, I think that's right. And uh, you may recall that the early deals in the wind sector, since many of them were based in California, the technology actually wasn't good. And the manufacturers had to give extended warranties because it was somewhat, uh, I don't want to say experimental, but it was still early on in the technology. And so in our practice, we've seen just the sheer size of the deals grow from the early vintage projects where they were probably 25 megawatts, grow to over a thousand megawatts now. So it's quite incredible just in the three decades how the shift in the U.S. and even across the globe is now really focused on renewable energy.
0: In those early days, the global wind power industry seemed to consist of just a few Danish wind turbine manufacturers and engineers tinkering on the hillsides in California you know, which at the time I mean, we accounted for almost all of the installed capacity of wind power in the United States. I remember people like Woody Stoddard, uh, who was a protege of Bill Hieronymus at UMass and Jim Delson and other pioneers were innovating. And and we were all working on early projects into Hatchipi and Altamont Pass and San Gregorio for companies like Flowwind and Kenetech and Zond. You know, wind turbines then often threw blades, uh, from their, you know, those old skeleton towers that they had and the. Uh, at had gearboxes that froze up. They ate birds for breakfast. I mean, today, renewable resources like wind and solar are larger. They're significantly more technologically advanced, making them reliable and affordable and scalable and really critical to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, you know, so we can keep the lights on and the sky's blue.
1: We really liked doing the renewable projects because one, it was really good for the environment and it was something obviously different than the thermal side.
0: Yeah, it's interesting of course, now we're looking at, you know, 800 megawatt offshore wind farms and the companies and the machines and the capital are quite large. If you look at that curve of technology improving, costs coming down, some of that with the support of government tax credits and, and other incentives, renewable portfolio standards, solar has taken kind of the same pathway, but later than wind. And now we're seeing, I think, solar displacing wind in a number of markets as far as the preferred renewable source. Do you, do you see that trend continuing?
1: I do, only because in many ways, the solar installations are easier than the wind farm installations. And like you said, the cost of solar equipment has come down. And I think with the advent of battery storage, um, energy storage projects, you know, that seems to be the flavor of the day. Offshore wind, because of the sheer size and sort of the interplay with federal maritime jones act issues they're big but the costs are so great but the deployment of that has sort of been slower to a lot of sponsor chagrin given when we first closed block island back in 2016 that was a 30 megawatt project and then to have the next project be an 800 megawatt vineyard wind project. I mean, that was a huge jump from 30 to 800. But with the power costs being what they are and what people are paying, you have to have the bigger size projects to make your the economics work. So I'm not at all surprised by the jump from 30 to 800. And hopefully the regulatory environment will support all the projects that are slated to come down the pipeline.
0: Yeah. And of course, I think efficiency of the grid and reliability of the grid. Certainly we've seen the impact of extreme heat on the California grid here where where you and I are, the impact of of hurricanes and extreme storms on the Gulf Coast and up the East Coast. And these are not just national impacts, these are international impacts. Would you expect a similar net outbound work for U.S. lawyers in this space in what we used to call emerging markets more so, or do you expect the United States to remain a positive source for new investment in added generating capacity?
1: Well, I think, Alan, you know as much as I do that what we have been successful with during our careers has frankly been following the capital and following our clients where they go. And so when we were working on projects in Asia and Latin America, it was really a function of the clients we were working for we're pursuing projects outside of the U.S. Being a global law firm as we are, I do believe that the skills that we have honed as U.S. attorneys will be exported to some of the other renewable projects that are taking place. At a rapid expansion, I do see that the skills we acquired from the U.S. development and deployment of the renewable energy technologies can be utilized globally in our other offices for our clients as they expand their development efforts and their financing efforts outside
0: what are some of the major differences you've experienced i know we can compare notes between working on domestic transactions and working on cross-border transactions
1: it's funny in, in many ways it's sort of like working on A project financing transaction, as you know, Alan, is a bunch of moving pieces. And even in the U.S., uh, given the number of contracts and the interplay between the real estate, environmental permitting, on top of everything else, the contract negotiations, the financing discussions and the like. When you overlay a cross-border transaction, which invariably includes some government-owned entity oftentimes, plus the interplay of different local regulations and frameworks for the legal environment and the political environment. I always say a cross-border transaction is a U.S. deal on steroids because you have all these other factors that come into play that you almost take for granted in the U.S. as not being relevant. So I, I always really enjoyed working on the projects overseas just because it added that extra element of having to deal with cultural issues, political issues, and also the innovation of working on first of its kind deals. So it it always was extremely exciting. And I'm sure you found the same when we were working on projects first of its kind in Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, I remember it very well. Actually, there's parts of it I miss, the cross-cultural aspect for sure, because it there was a different way that teams were formed one of the, one of the keys to teams is loyalty right everybody's got this sense of common purpose and i know your clients have been still are really devoted to you but you've also been instrumental in building internal teams at the firm you've been involved with me on the recruiting committee you've been a leader in diversity and inclusion and affinity groups and really kind of set the tone for a lot of the mentoring initiatives that we've taken Over the years, what's been kind of your secret or the key advice you'd give for any managing partner or anybody trying to build teams of associates who are not just competent, not just qualified, not just getting good training, but actually enjoying the work they're doing and growing and stretching with satisfying challenges.
1: You probably give me more credit than I deserve, frankly, Alan. But in terms of team building and consensus building, I always like to think and I, and hopefully everyone who's on the teams that I'm working with appreciate the fact that everyone who's on the team has an important role to play and we're only as strong as our weakest, our weakest link. And so we need to make sure everyone on the team has a clear sense of the objectives and the goals and everyone is committed to the same, you know, accomplishment of those goals. And so by recognizing the value that each individual on the team is expected to play and can play helps people become engaged in that endeavor. And so you want everyone on the same page, moving in the same direction, and it's pretty sort of fundamental. And sometimes leaders overlook that.
0: And obviously there's generational changes too. When you and I were coming up through the ranks, there was a lot of talk about role models. And you look at how somebody else who's senior to you is performing, how they're relating to clients to kind of work they're doing. We try to copy that and emulate it. I, I would submit probably now empathy is, probably is more important, right to building that that sense of common purpose. Have you seen other types of shifts that way?
1: Well, what's changed a lot, and you know now we have become Alan, unfortunately, the gray-haired people in the room. and we are viewed as a senior partners now. And so when I was at the firm, for one thing, there weren't very many women partners. So the role models may not have existed. Fast forward 30 years later, the firm looks very different.
0: Yeah, now we are more diverse and more flexible.
1: I totally agree with that. And the firm's appreciation that balance in one's life is important has you know, resulted in happier and more sustained longevity among lawyers and staff. And just recognizing that while we're in a very demanding service industry, like you mentioned, the empathy is very important, but also just recognizing that as important as a job we have to get our clients deal closed, our clients case properly handled at the end of the day we're individuals and humans. And so just recognizing the fact that, you know, there are other outside interests and that we can't just be 100% working. The productivity declines unless you have a break and you take a rest. So I think just also appreciating the limitations of people individually is also very important.
0: Well, that's one too, where technology, there's one, you and I were practicing when we had to check our voicemails by payphones on a weekend, right? If you're not in the office, and then the BlackBerry came out and everyone said, I don't want to have a pager. I'm not a doctor. Why do I need that? And then it became the crackberry. We couldn't put it down. And of course now iPhones and other devices, Android devices, I mean, we are connected 24 seven. We have the capability of being available and responsive for clients and for each other 24 seven that allows us to work from anywhere, whether there's a pandemic or not, but it also makes it difficult. I think for a lot of people to come to, to separate their professional life from everything else that they're trying to do and the other relationships that they have. Do you think that that's added more stress or has it given people more flexibility where it relieves stress net?
1: I think if you ask that question to 100 people, 50 percent might come out the former and 50 percent might come out the latter. I personally believe that the technology was liberating. So I was offered the very first BlackBerry at Milbank. And I remember the IT people said, well, you're on the road a lot. You're not around. You know, how would you like to test this device? You know, sign me up. You know, I, I, that sounds great. It was a, a way to stay connected when I was not in the office. And so for a mom, for a woman to be able to spend an hour at Apple Day, you know, for Mackenzie, my daughter, when she was in, you know, kindergarten, because I had a BlackBerry, I found that very liberating. But at the same time, I do believe that the technological advances which have created sort of this freedom to work from anywhere has added some stress because now everything's immediate. Like it used to be, we would take two weeks to turn a set of documents. we meet in person, and then two weeks later we turn the draft because it was quite a prediction to produce a 200-page credit agreement. And no one expected anything like the next day. I mean, now you're on a conference call, you're negotiating a deal, and people expect you to turn the documents by the next morning. So clearly, that is more stressful than maybe when we had a two-week turnaround time. I find that it's both stress-relieving by virtue of allowing you to be not tied and tethered to a physical location, but also stress inducing because of the expectations around immediacy that technology offers.
0: Yeah, I find that the productivity gain is huge too. It used to be you'd take an airplane flight and you were kind of blacked out for that time period. And then you'd spend two hours in the hotel or three hours and you got back home from the airport going through your emails and, and responding to things. Now you can get all that done in real time on the plane which then creates extra time. Now that may be extra time for the family or for meeting with clients or maybe extra time to do more work. But you you, you know, that productivity gain is quite real.
1: I totally agree with that. I mean, you used to always laugh at me because I like to take red eyes, but the whole point of taking a red eye was I could wake up and not miss any time. But now that they actually have internet on planes, once we start going back to traveling again, I think that people don't mind it because you can stay connected and still get work done.
0: Well, and knowing you as well as I do from so many years, I'd also say you've always been someone who's taken pride, at least shown pride in being responsive and being available and kind of exceeding expectations. So, you know, if you're on the red eye flight and everybody else is asleep, No one will be disappointed that it takes you an extra 20 minutes to respond, right? But during the day, you know, you're going to be there. And that's one of the reasons people have been so loyal to you.
1: Well, I think that Millbank lawyers are successful because of the trust that clients have in them. And if you are dedicated to their success and you're responsive, that's half the battle. Is knowing that you're going to be there for them. I want to be able to respond as quickly as possible and get them what they need as soon as possible. I do pride myself that a lot of my client development has just been through the loyalty, as you mentioned, from clients and the repeat business because you know, they're happy with the responsiveness and the dedication I've made to their success.
0: So one of the things, I, I, at the very beginning of this conversation, we talked about renewable energy. And you mentioned how it's good for the environment, which obviously was one of the things that attracted me to this practice as well. This idea of furthering economic development in ways that were resilient and sustainable and were better than just for the people investing in them. When you look at the role that values plays in your approach to law practice or even other things, I mean, you serve on uh, as head of the board of counselors at the law school at USC, you've been active in pro bono and working with public counsel and other organizations for years. When you look at the role of values for a corporate lawyer in a big firm and you're looking at junior associates who obviously are very attuned appropriately so to how aligned institutions can be with their own personal value systems and ethical goals and social goals and justice issues what would your advice be to a lawyer when she or he are trying to sort through this question of both relevance and consistency of the transactions or the matters they're working on with their own their own values and priorities?
1: I think it's important for people to remain true to themselves and to maintain their values. So there have been people who have been not as successful at a place like Millbank because they haven't bought into sort of what we do conceptually representing large institutions in a capital intensive framework like we do here in the global projects, energy and infrastructure practice that you and I work in. And so you can only have longevity in any career if you're personally satisfied. If you wake up every day and you dread doing your work, you know, you're know you not gonna last very long at that work. You have to be able to maintain your core values and what you do, whether it's work or your personal life. And so having that ability to feel good about yourself and being able to wake up with a positive outlook and the happiness that you can derive from your career is really a function of being able to feel like you are genuine and authentic to your values and so i appreciate that what i do may not help erase necessarily the racial inequality but as professionals who have also a desire to erase Social inequality, there are things that we can do with our legal skills through our pro bono services, for instance, where we can help you know, address some of those issues. And so, in many ways, the skills we acquired from law school and, fin- and the financial success that we have to be able to contribute to organizations dedicated to values that we want to pursue are ways that we, as successful corporate attorneys, can help in promoting the values that we care about. And so I have always viewed philanthropy as a privilege and you know having legal skills to help people is also a privilege. And to be able to get paid for our skills from clients as well as working for pro bono clients, using those same skills is definitely something that is important and has always been important and I know that the generation of lawyers coming out of law school now that's even more important to them because I understand from talking to law school career counselors that it's harder to get a public service job now than it is for people to get jobs in big law because more people are going towards that path. So being able to be at a place where your values your your individual values are respected and encouraged is something that's very important and so I've been here at Millbank for as long as I have because it's been a place where I've been able to do that.
0: Yeah, and with that privilege comes responsibility, but also in this case, you know, the resources to make a real difference. Yes. And another part of it is is, is relationships, right? You know, it's the, the the kinds of interpersonal connections that one builds, not just social networks, but just one-on-one with individuals and listening to them and being able to contribute to nurturing that.
1: No, I think that's right. And when you narrow down or you distill what we do on a day-to-day basis, it's really about relationships and communication. And it's important to have a good relationship with everyone involved in the transaction. And so it's as fundamental as making sure you're communicating correctly what your client's position is and making sure that there's not something that like people are talking past each other. Because sometimes I find, you know, where we're having contentious points is basically people aren't appreciating each other's perspectives and finding that common ground because you're actually not as far apart as it might seem at the moment when you're actually not appreciating each other's desires and perspectives.
0: Yeah, I think it took me 30 years to figure out, and, and my family may not think I'm actually there yet, but the idea of listening more and speaking less, it actually can make a, a much more of a positive difference.
1: Absolutely. I think that's right. Many times we, we come into something with our own lens and stepping back and seeing it from the other side's perspective is incredibly <laughs> helpful for reaching a resolution.
0: Well, Karen, thank you very much for taking the time to, to chat today and, and to share your, your your thoughts.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure, Alan. It's it's been wonderful working with you and I'll miss it. So thank you.
0: Thank you. You too. Thank you for joining us for another Millbank Conversation. We trust you find our expertise and insights compelling. Learn more at millbank.com.